Our passage this morning is Romans 16, 1 through 16, and 21 through 27. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Sencre, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need for you, from you, for she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved, beloved Apenetus, who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. Greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and my beloved Stachys. Greet Apelles, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Greet my kinsman Herodian. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Greet those workers in the Lord, Tryphena and Tryphosa. Greet the beloved Persis, who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Patrobus, Hermes, and the brothers who are with them. Greet Philogulus, Philogus, Julia, Nerus, and his sister Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. So do Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, my kinsmen. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, who is a host to me and to the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother Cordus greet you. Now, to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed, and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. To the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Welcome to Sojourn. If you're wondering why are we reading all this list of names, we've been investing a lot of our time together uh, through the book of Romans for, I think we've gone over a year at this point uh, in the book of Romans and we're nearing the end and we dare not want to pass over any portion of it, that all of the scripture is what we believe is, is breathed out by God, is profitable for us, is to instruct and inform our lives so we go through each portion of the book of Romans as well. And, and this portion with all these names we don't think is just a, a waste of our time, but can instruct and inform us. Lists do this. Lists reveal a lot, don't they? What, what is your, what's on your to-do list? What's on your grocery list? What's on your Christmas list? Like those, what's on those lists is going to reveal a lot about you. What you like, what you don't like, what you want, what you don't want. It's going to reveal some of who you are and what you're about. 
Think about your, your list of invitations that you would send to a, a party or to a wedding. Like who you're putting on that list and who you're not is going to tell something about your emotions and feelings toward other people. And, and it will also describe a lot about what has gone on in your life. And lists do this. They can reveal a lot. And this end of, of Romans here, the, as we finish through and get through Romans chapter 16, Paul gives a list of, of greetings. And it's full of names. And what this list of greetings and names does is it reveals a lot. It reveals a lot about Paul. It reveals a lot about the community at Rome. And I think it reveals something to us of the gospel. So all these, this list and this name and these greetings are instructive for us and for all the readers that Paul had. Paul doesn't seem to be writing this, this greeting and this list of names just to kind of like fit the form of what a letter is to look like and to be. And then like, hey, I better finish out this part of it and, and formulaically kind of write in a few names because that's what I'm supposed to do. He, he writes, I think, to encourage and to instruct. And he begins in, in chapter 16, verse 1, with the commendation for Phoebe. Phoebe likely is carrying the letter, and he says of her in verse 1 and 2, I want to commend you, our sister Phoebe, a servant of Christ at Sincrea, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you, for she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. Paul writes to commend her so that she'll get the treatment of verse 2 when, he, when she arrives, likely with the letter of Romans. Think of the, the, the weight of carrying this letter that we hold so dear and treasure so much, and, and Phoebe's the one who likely carried it. She's commended, though, first, notice, as a sister, as part of the Christian family. Like Paul continues to, to speak of them and to them as if they're a brotherhood and a sisterhood, as if they're a family. And that's first how he commends her. This is where Paul starts. He doesn't start, even though he wants her to have this warm reception and receive all that she needs when she's there. He doesn't first start with her list of credentials or some title that she might have gotten from, from somewhere in the world. He starts first with her reality of who she is in Christ to him, and that is a sister. It's, again, foundational to Paul and to how he views others in Christ. First, he views them as family, as brothers and sisters. They're, they're intimate relations because of the work of Christ that has happened in their life and in his life. Now they are related to one another in Christ Jesus. And in Christ, this is how we ought to see one another as well. We are those who are defined by God and his word. And he says of those who are in Christ that they are those who are following their elder brother. Jesus is the firstborn among many brothers. And so we are family, brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus. And that's how Paul sees her. That's how he first commends her. I want to commend our sister Phoebe. Phoebe, she is likely single. We don't know. Maybe she was widowed. Maybe she's just completely unmarried. But notice again that Paul doesn't say, hey, I want to commend you, our single sister Phoebe. He says, I want to commend our sister Phoebe. He doesn't view her, again, as, as a solo person on her own, like she's a single Christian. No, she's a Christian, which means she's a sister. I don't think in Paul's theology you would have had this idea or concept of, of someone who's like a, a single Christian. He's like, no, we are the family of Christ. And so she is our sister, because what Christ has accomplished in us is that now we're linked together as family. But Phoebe is also described as a servant, the word there is deacon. Now, the, the big debate always right here when you go to chapter 16 is, is this speaking of the office of deacon or, or not? 
In, in the scriptures, in the New Testament, the, the office, uh, there are a few offices listed for the church, the office of pastor, elder, overseer, and the office of deacon. The this, this office of deacon is, is an office of service. They are to meet the, the physical needs of the church. They're to do what they can to take off some service roles so that the, the elders and pastors can be free to devote themselves to the word of God and prayer. And we, we see the qualifications for them in, in 1 Timothy chapter 3. And in 1 Timothy chapter 3, I think, we were not looking at it today, but I think that there is room in the office of deacon for Phoebe to fit the role of that office. I also think that there's room in our biblical theology, the way the Bible fits together, the way we read it together as a whole and put it together, I don't think there's any issues with Phoebe, a, a woman, being uh, in the office of deacon. I don't think it rubs up against some of the common uh, passages of 1 Timothy 2 that you would think of of a woman not holding authority, not teaching or holding authority over a man because, again, the office is an office of service. I don't think even practically there's any rubs. Practically, we think that the women serving, even in an official office, could be practically extremely helpful and, and serve in some ways that men, men cannot. So is Phoebe an example of this? Well, ultimately, we have to come to chapter 16 and say, well, we don't know. The word that he uses here of, as deacon does designate an office at other places. It is unique that he does say she is a, a deacon of, a search of the church of Synchria. That's the only time he attaches that to a specific place. And, and he does use that word deacon is, is masculine. So all those are, are interesting and helpful points to say I, it could be that he is indicating that she holds the official office. But we could also be completely wrong. <laughs> and we know that he uses the word deacon more generically. Even in the book of Romans, he uses it more generically. So from this verse, it is impossible to be certain whether she holds that office or not. And so if you're going to say that there's room for women to serve in the official office of deacon, I think you'd have to go a lot further than just Romans 16 to uh, have a foundation for that. We feel like there is room uh, but not based just on this or on Phoebe. And, and whether she's in the office or not, here's what we ought to be able to see in Paul's writing of her is that more important to him is her actual Christ-like service. So, so more important than whether she is in this office or not is her actual service as a deacon, as a servant of the church. That's why he actually commends her. And so because she is this, he says she needs to be welcomed and she needs to be helped along her way whatever she needs. He continues his greeting. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. He said, greet also the church in their house, and greet my beloved Apenetus, who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. It's again impossible to know for certain, but, but, the, but the Christian community as you see this word church in their house, the Christian community could have been comprised of many houses that where they met, right, where they had several smaller churches in a sense, that, that they would meet in these houses, and that maybe Paul even wrote the, the, the book of Romans to all of these, and it was going to be passed around. We don't know. It's impossible to know for certain what's going on here, but that they would have received this letter, and, and it's impossible to know, again, from these details, how they would have functioned together if that were the case. But Prisca and Aquila are, are part and a massive part of this that Paul wants to greet. And it, we should know their names. They were in Acts chapter 18 as well. In, in Acts chapter 18, this is where we first see them. Paul left Athens and he went to Corinth. 
And he found a Jew named Aquila, and a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife, Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome, and he went to see them. And because he was one of the same trade, he stayed with them, and he worked there, for they were tent makers by trade. So here we have a, a couple that they were in Rome, and they're pushed out of Rome by, by Roman decree, in the emperor's decree, and Paul meets them in Corinth. If you skip down to verse 25, he's speaking of uh, Apollos. Uh, he had been instructed in the way of the Lord and being fervent in the spirit. He spoke and he taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. And you're getting ready to see Priscilla and Aquila come in here, and, and they're in Ephesus. So here they are, they're showing up in Ephesus. Now, Paul writes them in Romans 16, and, and they're back in Rome. And Paul's going to write again in, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 19, where again, it looks like they are back in Ephesus. So we have this couple who were in Rome, then they were in Corinth, then they were in Ephesus, then they were back in Rome, and then they were back in Ephesus. It's possible that their trade as tent makers and working with leather, uh, leather was, was what was pushing them in and out of different places, but every place they go, they are workers for Christ, laboring for the sake of the church. This is a couple that labored side by side with one another and with Paul for the church, and Paul indicates here, even at their own risk. Now, we don't know when they risked their necks for Paul's sake. Maybe it was in Ephesus when there was a riot started and everybody wanted to get rid of Paul. Maybe they jumped into the fray. Or maybe as they're traveling and working with Paul in lots of different areas, they're jumping into the fray, risking their necks along with Paul. Here's what we know is that they likely not only supported Paul and his Gentile mission, but here in Acts 18, we, we see so clearly that they were jumping in to the Gentile mission as well. They were working hard together to both equip and encourage the, the church and move them forward in Christ-likeness. In Acts chapter 18, here's their working for this when they're addressing Apollo. So verse 24 this is Apollos, an eloquent man. He was competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord. And being fervent in the spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he only knew the baptism of John. And he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and they explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. Right here they are coming alongside someone, when they hear him teaching and preaching, they pull him aside and like, we're going to encourage and equip this one to release him out to do further work for the sake of the church. Their life and ministry had an impact, probably in Rome and Corinth and Ephesus and Rome again and Ephesus again as they continue not only to encourage and equip and disciple, but also minister themselves to people all around them. They are servants of the church, fellow workers in Christ Jesus, Paul calls them. And their life and ministry had an impact on the Gentiles, likely similar to what we see in verse 5, this man who's named Apenetus, right? He is one that, he was the first convert in Asia, it says, and here he's moving to Rome. And so we move from kind of modern day Turkey all the way up into Italy. And this is how the gospel keeps rippling out, like the, the gospel went to a place and then it started to move out to another place. And Likely, Aquila and Priscilla have that kind of impact. They're moving and the ripples are moving outward along with them as they are fellow workers in Christ Jesus. And in verse 6, Paul says, Greet Mary, who's worked hard for you. Now, Mary, that's a name that rings a bell in our mind all the time. When we think about women of the scripture, we think of Mary. It, it is possible that this is the mother of Jesus. We don't know. We have no evidence one way or another that she is. It's, it's possible. But the way he describes Mary suggests that Mary would have been one of the first of the laborers and workers for the Roman church. 
That's the description that he gives here, that she worked hard for you. Maybe she was laying the groundwork. Maybe she was one of the, the kind of the foundational members of the church that was in Rome. In verse 7, he says, Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen, my, my fellow prisoners. They're well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. In other words, I think he's saying, fellow kinsmen, they're, they're Jews along with me, and, and apparently they have a ministry that, that has some renown, even amongst the apostles. It's possible even that Junia, that's a Latin name, is the Latin of the, uh, the name uh, Joanna. And Joanna we find in Luke's gospel a couple different times. In Luke chapter 8, she's listed. And in chapter 24, verse 10, Joanna is listed as one of the women who was a a, an eyewitness of the resurrection and went and told the disciples, hey, the tomb is empty and it's possible that those are the same person, just one is written in the Latin name in, here in Romans 16 and Luke writes in her other name, Joanna. And it seems to fit Paul's description of their renown and ministry and that he uh, knew that they were in Christ before him. He, he continues, verse 8, Green, Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord, Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and my beloved Stachys. Greet Apelles, who is approved in Christ, and greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Greet my kinsman, Herodian. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Greet those workers in the Lord, Tryphena and Tryphosa. Greet the beloved Persis, who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. In Mark chapter 15, we see a name that you're going to think is familiar here after reading that. Mark 15, verse 21. This is when Jesus is, is going out to Golgotha, and on the way they compelled, in verse 21, a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And we went through the, the Gospel of Mark maybe a year or so ago, a few years ago, I can't remember at this point. Not very long ago, and the mention of three specific names in Mark's gospel is really unique and strange. And yet there he does it, and not only is that unusual, but Mark, his original audience, probably his primary audience, was Roman. So it's possible that Mark points out Rufus there as one who they would have known in Rome as he's writing to them this gospel. And so it's possible that this Rufus that, that Paul mentions in Romans 16 is the same one that saw Jesus carrying the cross, whose father took up part of the cross and carried it further on out. And if so, the way that Paul describes him here should be really interesting, isn't it? Might have been a sweet word to say, hey, greet Rufus, chosen. Because when he thinks about being chosen, like, man, for he and his father, they were probably just out and about that day. Maybe they were trying to take in what was going on, and all of a sudden, they just kind of happened upon this man carrying a cross. And this man carrying a cross, they're saying, like, actually, you want your dad to carry it, because he's so uh, broken down that he can't get it the rest of the way. And so his father is now then compelled to take the cross the rest of the way. And, and what a picture that Rufus would have gotten of, of Mark's words when he said, if you're going to follow Jesus, you're going to have to take up your cross. He just happened to be there that day, and yet Paul could be saying of that same man, man, he's chosen in the Lord. Chosen not only to, to have seen Christ, but, but maybe to take up the cross in the exact same way in his own life. Maybe not the physical cross, but that's what it looks like to follow Jesus. So when he hears that, 
hey, Rufus, he's chosen the Lord. He, he would understand. That means I'm taking up my cross. But if I'm taking up my cross, I, I know what happened to that Christ who took up his cross. And he didn't stay in the tomb long. And if I'm in Christ, I'm, I'm chosen in Christ. Not only am I chosen to carry a cross, but I'm chosen to raise from the dead. In verse 14, Paul continues, Greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Patrobus, Hermas, and the brothers who are with them. Greet Philologus, Julia, Nereus, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. And then greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. There's a, a one another kiss here. That's the one another command that maybe we don't talk about as much. <laughs> greet one another. With the holy kiss, this was a greeting of the early Christians in the early Christian church. And, and notice how he describes this. Not, not greet each other with kisses. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Well, apparently it's sanctified, you know? Like, there's no fleshly motive in the midst of this. It, it's a holy kiss. It's a kiss that would demonstrate their warmth and their affection and their closeness, that they are family. This is how he's speaking of them and talking to them as family. And this kiss would be a display of that, a physical display of their togetherness, of their being family with one another. Now, the kiss may not demonstrate the same today in most social settings. But before we push that off as something we don't do, let's also remember that Paul repeats this command several times. He repeats it in 1st and 2nd Corinthians. A church that was a mess and had all sorts of, note this, Physical, sexual immorality in its midst. And he doesn't say, you know what, forget about that whole physical holy kiss thing. No, he says it in First and Second Corinthians. He says it in First Thessalonians. Peter says it as well. And so we don't want to dismiss or, or even miss what the heart of the command would be. Uh, one author says this, that it's a culturally appropriate, morally chaste, Physical expression of love for other believers. I, I love the description of that. That's why I put it up there. Like all these men are culturally appropriate, morally chaste, it's holy, physical expression of love for other believers. Kissing in our culture may not be our physical expression of love and affection, but something physical should be. God has formed a new people in Christ Jesus. He has bound them together as family in love. And we are to greet one another accordingly. And that has a physical aspect to it. An important aspect of us as a new people in Christ Jesus is that we are embodied. We are not a virtual people. As many times we have to say that, we need to say that. We do not have a virtual God. We have a real God. We have Christ who took on flesh and rose embodied. We are an embodied people, and so that matters. It's not unimportant to who we are. So physical aspects of our existence together are not unimportant. They're, they're very important. And our physical aspects of our life together are to be stewarded and sanctified. It's a holy kiss. So in a diverse community, in Christ, there's to be some sort of holy display of affection, of love, and closeness for one another. It's a physical display that cuts through all of the differences that exist within community and shows a transcendent love and a deeper reality that Christ has won. Think of how important this could be for those in the body that come from all these diverse backgrounds that have all sorts of different social statuses outside the belonging of the church. Think about even those who would have had received or not received any sort of physical touch or affection at all. 
And to that, Paul says, greet one another with a holy kiss. Now, what should this look like for us? Should we kiss? Should we shake hands? Should we hug? I, I don't know that I have the, the exact, here's what it should for sure look like. Maybe all of those. Now, some of the holy fist bumps I've received have been some of the most encouraging things that some of you have given me. There have been times when I'm, I'm sitting in fear or I'm, I'm worrying and anxious and a, a fist bump, a grab of the shoulder can be some of the most sweet ways I can receive love from you as the Lord works in you. Shaking, hugging, I don't know. It should be something. If you're someone who doesn't like physical touch, you're, you're thinking, yikes. Please stay away. Don't say we need to greet one another with a holy kiss. If you're one who's touchy, you're like, yes, this is a weird place where we don't ever grab and hug. Like, and we have all that in the same room. And so here's what we know is that we need to be sensitive. Like we need to be careful. There are people with all kinds of different backgrounds and sensitivities. But we also need to recognize that God made us to give and receive physical touch as redeemed, embodied family in Christ Jesus to confirm our love for one another. And so we need to greet one another accordingly. Like think of, again, the people that would be ostracized in certain ways are welcomed warmly here. And think of those who receive no touch from anyone else in their life that, that could come in here and are made by God to receive physical touch, can receive the, the appropriate holy physical touch that God has made us to receive. Those are the things that we can minister to one another and are to. And so here, you have these final greetings from Paul. He, he lists and tells them to greet one another with a holy kiss. Then he's going to write and say, here are some people with me. In verse 21, Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. So do Lucius and Jason and Sospiter, my kinsmen. And then Tertius takes up the pen and he says, I wrote this letter to greet, I greet you in the Lord. Gaius, who is host to me and the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother Cordus greets you. And these greetings, all right, we've, we've covered some of the things that are just present there, but these greetings reveal a lot. They teach a lot. They reveal something about Paul. They reveal something about community. They reveal something about the gospel. Paul, he's this great theologian. Man, have we not seen that in the book of Romans. He's a great missionary. He, he's gone out and he's been able to proclaim the gospel boldly and faithfully and fruit has come from his life. He's an excellent church planner. He goes and he spends time and he, he sinks roots down deep and he raises up pastors and then he moves on and he comes back and encourages. We see in the book of Romans, he's a genius writer, but we also need to know that Paul is no solitary figure. He, he's no Lone Ranger Christian. His life was a life that was in community, in deep relationship with other brothers and sisters who were also in Christ. He believed and he lived out the reality that he told them to live into. That we, in chapter 12, verse 5, we belong to one another. And he belonged to other Christians. He belonged to others in Christ. So this list, as we read through this list of, of Paul's names that he wants to send greetings to, it's a list that has great breadth of community, but also depth. Paul shows love with brotherly affection as he told them to do in chapter 12, verse 10. Think of the names he lists here. Apinatus, Ampliatus, Stachys, Persis, they're all called beloved. Now, does that mean he loves them and he doesn't love others? I don't think so. Maybe there's a, a unique relationship that he shared with them, but maybe they're also brothers that he knew well enough to say, they need to hear from me that they are beloved by me. But he had depth with them, so much so that he could call them beloved. Phoebe is his sister, 
Rufus' mother was a mother to him. He greets brothers in verse 14. He has brother Cordus in verse 23. He's going everywhere, and in every way that the descriptions of these people are showing some depth in relationship with Paul. Other people in Christ in depth of relationship with Paul who's in Christ. So this list reveals Paul's love and affection. But notice that he also, in chapter 12, verse 10, he says, show one another brotherly affection, but he also says, honor one another, outdo one another in showing honor. And doesn't he do that? Doesn't he go first in showing some honor to this, these, this list of names? Priscilla and Aquila. Man, they risk their necks. They're fellow workers and they risk their necks for my life. Urbanus, Timothy, they are co-laborers. Phoebe is commended for her service. Mary was like a mother to him. Or Mary, sorry, worked hard uh, for the church. Try the Tryphena and Tryphosa and Persis, they worked hard as well. And then there's Andronicus and Junia. They were prisoners along with them. Uh, Apelles, he was approved. Again, maybe this was a man who needed to know, hey, there's no condemnation for you in Christ Jesus. You're approved. And so he goes first and he honors him. He talks of Rufus as this one who is chosen. In other words, when we're hearing these things from Paul, this is a man with deep, treasured relationships with other believers that he loves and honors, and it's everywhere he goes. This is what he's like. So why to go to all the trouble to write all these greetings? Because in chapter 12, verse 10, he, he believes these things, that he wants love to be genuine, and he has genuine love. And he wants them to love one another with brotherly affection, and he loves others with brotherly affection. He wants them to outdo one another in showing honor, and he goes first in showing honor. He can do all of that because his life actually is a life lived in community with fellow believers. Church, if you were to pick up the pen and you were to start writing some final greetings, just the way Paul does here, would it have some breadth to it? More importantly, maybe would it have some, some depth, depth to it because of your faithful life lived in Christ and in Christ's community? And that's the life that, that God instructs us, invites us into is a life that's not only in Christ, but the life in Christ is a life in Christ in community with other brothers and sisters in Christ. So if you were to pick up the pen, could you write down some names that had some depth in your life, some, some Christian fellowship and depth of fellowship and community, some real family? Could you write of your genuine and sincere love for others? Could you, could you go first in, in showing not only your brotherly affection, but your honor for them? If you picked up the pen, what would be there? Do you have a beloved sister, brother, mother, and father in Christ that you could name, that you could greet, that you could honor? If you're a sojourner, like if you've been here a while, you're belonging here, this is your home, then in this room should be those names. Maybe not exclusively, but in this room, right, there ought to be a physical reality to our community with one another. We're not just a virtual community. There's a holy kiss because there's a physical presence. And in this room should be some of those names, not exclusively, but maybe primarily Certainly, part of your list should include people in this room. Is that true of your life? Because you're living life in community with other people that you're actually in this room with. You see, I think our temptation is likely not isolation. 
That, that could be part of our temptation. If that's your temptation, you need to hear the good invitation from God to live a life not in isolation, but in, in community and, and love that, that God has called us into. But I think our temptation is not so much isolation, but more selection of our community, more curation of our lives. So that we could like, we'll, we'll make sure that we have life in community, but we're going to kind of curate it to make sure it's only parts of our lives that look okay. We're going to be kind of selective with, with how far we let people in and how far we're in with them because we want, to, we want to make sure that it's the right kind of picture that we have. And so we don't want to live life on our own, but we don't want to live all the way in with other people. I think that's more of our temptation. But Paul's view of life and community is family. And guess what? Your family knows about you. Probably everything. And it's hard to hide it when you're living life together. right? They know the good and the bad. It's like, my kids know, and I'm mad because I spilled the coffee this morning. Like, couldn't hide that and act like everything's great on Sunday morning. Like, sometimes I'm mad on Sunday morning because I spilled the coffee, and that's not hidden from them. That's life together. Paul relates to them as family and as co-laborers, people that he's seen, he knows, he's around, and it's not a curated view of his life. They would have seen him. Some of them were fellow prisoners. He might have said some things in there that he wishes he could take back. Now, he suffered and his life was at risk. There might have been some things that he said and, and that he did that he would have taken back. And they would have been a part of that. He, he doesn't have a curated view of his life with these people who are just like, I'm going to select. Like, no, you're in the depths of labor with them, of suffering with them, of ministry with them, of life with them together as family. And that's the community. That's the kind of relationship that Scripture calls believers into. And in our temptation, here's what we need to hear. In our temptation to pull back, to be selective, not only of the people, but of what, what we show to other people, in our temptation to maybe curate our lives, we need to hear and be reminded of the power of the gospel in community and the goal of community. In chapter 15, verse 5, listen to what Paul says. He, he prays and says, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you. that It's coming from God, and what is God needed for? To grant, to give. That you might live in harmony with one another. It, it, the power of that kind of life and community comes from God. And those go together. That if you trust in God, He's going to give you what you need to live in harmony with other believers. Live with one another in accord with Christ Jesus. That together, you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The harmony that we have with one another and the Community, it, it fits together. It belongs with the, the glorifying of God's name. Those go together. You are meant to not only glorify God with your voice, but glorify God as one voice with others in Christ Jesus. Those are together in Scripture. And what Paul has revealed in his relationship depth in this, this list of names, it isn't detached for him from theological depth. Like his... Life. He, he writes out of this, this great gospel depth. He, he gives us this gospel depth in Romans chapters 1 through 11. He goes down to the deeps of the gospel and he pulls us along with him. And then in chapter 12 through 15, he encourages all kinds of relational depth within life and community. And in chapter 16, he shows, I have this relational depth because of the work of the gospel. And so we need to remember that this is a depth that, that's not natural. It wasn't natural to Paul. The people in this list, they would have been on his hit list before. They would have been people he's going to seek out to try to destroy. 
They would have been people he would have had nothing to do with or he'd been considered unclean. And so he thought that would be anathema to him. That none of these people would have said, like, I want to work with them. Let's let them be my co-workers. None of these people, as he's saying, I want to adopt you into my family as my, my brother and my mother and my sister. None of these people probably would have been on that list for Paul. But Paul was a man who was shaped and formed and transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he was united to Christ is what he says in the book of Romans. And when you're united to Christ, you get what is Christ. And what is Christ? Not a person, a people, a family, brothers and sisters. He has one, a family of God. And Paul is united not just to Christ, but to that family. And those family he considers brothers, sisters, even some are his mothers. This is a blood-bought depth of relationship that all in Christ, this isn't unique to Paul, all in Christ can have and should have because of the work of Christ might not be natural for us either, but the gospel has something to say about that. I'm going to take what, you, what were your inclinations and I'm going to turn them. I'm going to turn them so that you might be with the people so that you together can glorify me with one voice. Paul's no lonely theologian, no solitary missionary, no solo church planner. He's not even writing alone as this ending shows. Like he is life that's lived in community. And so he greets a community of people. Who would you greet if you were to pick up the pen? That list, those names, that list is going to reveal a lot about you. It's going to reveal a lot of your theology, not just your relationships. This list reveals a lot about Paul and also reveals much about the form and shape of the Roman community. Paul here, he greets roughly 28 people. 18 names are in Greek. Now, none of this, because they have this certain kind of name, doesn't mean that they are specifically of that culture. They, they, there's Greek names. That may mean that they're Greco-Roman people. It may mean that their name got shifted or changed. Like We don't know for sure, but it's likely that they carry some cultural connotation as well. So there's 18 Greek names, 8 Latin names. There's clearly some Jewish people and Jewish names here. Many of these names are common slave names. So likely this list includes slaves. A few of their names suggest that they have a background as a slave. So maybe they've come out of slavery. Notice the now, how interesting of a mix that would be. You're a slave. You've come out of slavery. While others are of, you know, little means, some have great means. There's a patron. There's a treasurer. There's houses that have churches. So it likely means that they had a little bit more means to be able to house some of the people in their own house. I mean, this is a diverse community with varied cultural backgrounds, very socioeconomic status, various religious backgrounds, and all of them are this community of equals. They have this solidarity, right? He, he greets them with some mutuality and say, you know, like this person is better than this person because of their, no, none of that stuff. He cuts right through the middle of it and he greets them. I, I think maybe perhaps this is especially displayed in the 10 or so women that are mentioned here. Six women out of the, one said 11, one, I, I counted 10, 10 to 11 women. Out of that number, six of them are commended. Out of the total, six men are commended too, so it's an equal number, that's interesting, but why, why a greater proportion of women commended than men? Well, the status of women in the Greco-Roman world was a lot more tenuous than the status of men. They probably needed a commendation to go a little bit further than, than what the men needed. The status of women in Greco-Roman world was tenuous at best. They were viewed mostly as inferior. They were certainly treated differently, sometimes as objects and property. They were in many instances the objects of the most merciless, dehumanizing treatment in the Greco-Roman world. 
but not in the church. Paul mentions them. And how does he mention them? He mentions them as family. He mentions them as co-workers. He mentions them with a sense of mutuality, with a sense of love, and with a sense of unity. Amen. And he does it in a way that would have seemed ridiculous to the culture of his time. In fact, there was an early uh, critic of Christianity, and he said this. He said, Christians, they show they want and are able to convince only the foolish, dishonorable, and stupid only slaves, women, and little children. And Paul goes right to the heart of that and says, yeah, that's my family. And he does it with all this dignity that he can give to them. And all the mutuality of being a co-laborer, all this love and unity, and all that fills that word family, the depth of that word family, he pours it all onto them. Especially these women. He mentions them as co-laborers, not as inferiors or objects. He doesn't mention them as women who should, you know what, you should leave the Christian work to the professionals or to the men. Now, I don't think, again, more of our temptation is not to think of them as objects, women as objects, but more of the sentiment of maybe that they should leave the work to the men. There was one prominent pastor when asked to reference shortly a, a, a woman in ministry, he said the words, go home. And I read from Charles Spurgeon something that seems to oppose that. He said, we cannot say to women, go home. There is nothing for you to do in the service of the Lord. Far from it. We entreat Martha and Mary, Lydia and Dorcas, and all the elect sisterhood, young and old, rich and poor, to instruct others and God instructs them. Young men and maidens, old men and matrons, Yes, and boys and girls who love the Lord should speak well of Jesus and make known his salvation from day to day. Amen. In Christ Jesus, we share brotherhood and sisterhood as family because of what he has done. That's blood-bought family, reality of Christ Jesus and his body. In Christ Jesus, we share the great commission, go make disciples of all the nations. In Christ Jesus, we share eternal life, male and female of various backgrounds. In Christ Jesus, that then should be evident now because we're in Christ now. And as I read Celsus' critique of the Christians, I wonder if his critique that these Christians show they want and are able to convince only the foolish, dishonorable, stupid, only slaves, women, and little children. I wonder if that critique could be leveled against us as it was against that early Christian community because of our diversity, because of the way we show great dignity and mutuality and love and affection in our midst. Could that be leveled against us? May it be so. The diversity, the dignity, the mutuality, the intimacy and unity that Paul reveals in this list, that's a kind of uh, thing that only grows out of gospel, only grows out of his theology. All right, this is one historian, not a Christian. He says that every human being, I, I quoted this a few weeks ago, but this is a little bit longer portion of it, but that every human being possessed an equal dignity was not remotely a self-evident truth at the time, the Greco-Roman time. A Roman would have laughed at it. To campaign against discrimination on the grounds of, listen to those things, Gender or sexuality, however, was to depend on large numbers of people sharing in common assumption that everyone possessed an inherent worth. They did not share that assumption. The origins of this principle, it lay not in the French Revolution, nor in the Declaration of Independence, nor in the Enlightenment. Where does it come from? In the Bible. 
this should be evident in the beauty of our theology, and if we have a beautiful theology, then it should be evident in the beauty of our community. Because out of that theology grows this community. And if you don't have the right theology, then all of a sudden all these assumptions that we're saying that Paul has here don't exist. Why should we treat one another with mutuality? Why should we love one another without discrimination against one another and because we came from different backgrounds? What should cut through that? Well, if you don't have the gospel, pretty soon all those things are going to fall through. But when you have the gospel and you're living your life out of the gospel, then all of a sudden those things can hold within the same body because of what Christ has done. There's this suggestion now that because we have phones and social medias and all these things that, that we are people that are, are more connected than ever. And perhaps that's true in some ways. I actually think it's probably less true than ever, but that's not what I'm talking about right now. It may be true in some ways. You may be more connected in ways because of your phone. But here's what you are for sure not more connected to because of your phone. If you have a phone, here's what you're not likely to be more connected to, and that is people unlike you. There, there's studies that have been done. Like the, the phone has not, maybe it's been connected you to some more, but it has certainly not connected you to people unlike you more. Paul's list of names and people here and the way he describes them is a list of people that no social media feed or, or however you fill out the, like they're working to figure out who you are and what you're like, Paul, and we're going to give you all these suggestions because of that. I don't know what that's, whatever, skipping my mind right now. With all that stuff, algorithms, they wouldn't have gone to Paul and said, here's, here's your suggested list of friends. Here's some people you should connect with. These names on this list in chapter 16 wouldn't have popped up. Maybe a few of them here and there. Most of them wouldn't have come up. And yet, he says of them, they're my coworkers. They're my family. Because that's what the gospel creates. Of people who are very, very different that no way in the world would come and say, you guys should be friends. Like, have you, have you thought about this guy? You guys might get along. No, you're very different. And yet, the only likeness you have is Christ. And yet, in that, you're family. And the way we view one another and treat one another should be and is happily distinct from the world because it's marked with an otherworldly kind of love, an otherworldly kind of dignity that we share with one another because we see one another not just as a, another person, but we see them as the Lord sees them. And with the right theology, the theology of chapters 1 through 11, we can and should have that kind of community and continue to move forward to that kind of community with one another. So the list reveals a lot about Paul and a lot about community, but it reveals something of the gospel too. You see the power of the gospel in this list? In chapter 1, verse 16, Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation. It's the kind of power that when it's at work, there's, there's life where there was only death before. That kind of power is in the gospel. And, and chapter 1, verse 16, and the power of the gospel is in name form in chapter 16. That's what's being done here. He's writing out these names, and every name is the power of the gospel. Because here's what we know from Paul in Romans, is that every single one of these people was deserving of the wrath and judgment of God. That every single one of these people was not running toward God, but away from God. Every single one of these people was trying to prop up their own life in some way, by the, be their, their works or their religion, some way they were trying to make themselves acceptable to a God or any God, and they were failing. And in some ways, they were all considered enemies to the one true living God. 
And yet Paul is greeting them all as family. And there's a pretty big number here, which is astonishing to think what was going on in the world. Right? There is every reason not to believe in this Christ, not to believe in this gospel. And yet Paul says, hey, greet this person, family. Greet this person, family. Greet this co-worker. The gospel keeps going to different people who hear it and believe it. And it transforms their lives and makes them family. The power of the gospel is just written out in a name form here. What can change a guy like Paul? What can change a guy who's so set on his life that he's willing to kill people in order to keep it going? The gospel. That's what. What can draw slaves and, and free men and women? What can draw the rich and the poor and then form them together as a people? The gospel, like nothing else does this. Everyone, it's easy to draw people that are exactly like us. Like, again, those algorithms are doing that right now. They're trying to pull us together with people that share our exact same things that we gripe about, they gripe about them. But the gospel can take people that gripe about this and gripe about this and then pull them all together and say, we're not going to be giving ourselves to griping and complaining anymore. We're going to rejoice in the Lord and we're in Christ and that's most fundamental and foundational to us as a, as a people. So that's what we're giving ourselves to. What can do that? The gospel. What can fuel them forward in continued happy partnership? What can fuel this co-laboring of men and women from various religious backgrounds, cultural backgrounds, socioeconomic backgrounds? What can fuel them forward as they continue out to carry out this ambition to Christ to be named where he has not been named. What can do that? The gospel. What can, can sustain them in their travels, in their ambitions, in their imprisonments, in their risk that they're taking of one another's lives as they're ministering the gospel? What can sustain them in their suffering? It's the gospel. Paul, he's writing this. He has no idea what's about to happen to him. He has an idea that I'm probably, probably not going to go well for me. The, the Romans, as he writes, he has no idea what Nero's getting ready to unleash on Christians in their, in their world. But but he has given them the gospel. He's given them what they need to be sustained in the midst of all of it. Not just as individuals, but as a people together. And so this list is a list that reveals the power of the gospel. Lists do that. They reveal a lot. Think about some lists in your life. What does it reveal? Your to-do list, your Christmas list, your invitation list. If you were to make a list like Paul makes here... May it be a list that's full of names, that both there's breadth there, but great depth as well. May it be a list that's full of diversity. May, be it, uh, may it be a list that's full of just gospel power, because we are those who, who, in chapter 12, this is what we did, right? We viewed the mercies of God, and because of that, we responded to those mercies by saying, here's my life as a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to you, Lord. That's my spiritual worship. My entire being is yours. And because that's true, I'm not going to be conformed to whatever the world says anymore. I want to be transformed by the renewal of my mind. And the thing that renews my mind the most is this glorious truth that has captured me, the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's who we're to be as a people. May God make it so. Let's pray together. Father, we want to pray first today a prayer of thanksgiving. We want to thank you for the beautiful body that you've put together of different people from all walks of life, and you've thrown us together. You've given us 
not only yourself, but you've given us one another, spiritual brothers and sisters to walk with and to grow. And I pray that we really would be stirred up today with hearts of thanks, that we would pick up the pen, as Dylan said. Uh, we probably don't need to literally pick up a pen, but we can pick up the phone and push buttons and we can remind people and thank people for how God has used them in our lives. Even the most isolated of us are not truly Lone Ranger Christians. We wouldn't be Christians apart from other people in the past who have told us who you are and who have loved us and demonstrated that. And I pray that we would remind them because it's a big deal for you, Holy Spirit, to work through other human beings and help us understand the truth and continue to stay strong and firm in the truth and to help us fight sin. Uh, God, we have so much to be thankful for of your work in other human beings. Help us to tell them this week and remind them of the way that God has used them. God, we also want to pray today for your help right now with this group, this body that you have put us into today. I pray that there would be no walls constructed between us and that we would be able to truly love. Give us both breadth, loving many people, all the people in this body, and also give us depth, Lord, that we would not be selective in either sharing our lives with each other and holding so much back, and that we also would not even be selective in who we share our lives with, Lord. I pray that we would be open and that we would love and even be able to demonstrate that physically, as we heard today, Lord. Uh, I, think, I think there is a lot of love for you and for one another in this body, but we know all of us, none of us can hear this sermon and think we're fine. Your spirit is constantly working in us to make us look more like you, Jesus, and we are not loving one another just like you love us, and that's our goal. So will you draw us deeper into our love? for one another and for the way that we share life together. And God, lastly, I pray for anyone who has heard this word today and doesn't know your love and doesn't understand the love that church members have for one another. God, I pray that your gospel, that the good news that you came into this world, Jesus, and put on human flesh and died on the cross to pay for our sins instead of us and that you rose up from the dead three days later and ascended into heaven and promised us that you would return and raise us from the dead and that we would be with you forever in a new heaven and earth cleansed of all of our unrighteousness god i pray that that gospel would be understood today by those who have never understood it that they would believe that it's true that they would turn from their sin and trust you Lord, and become your brothers and sisters and ours and your worshipers, Lord. Let them fall at your feet today and know your love and begin to experience ours in a new way. 
In your name I pray. Amen.